All right, how many of you guys are music lovers? Like to listen to music? So as we look across the room, we have different generations in the room. I'm a, I was born in 76, I'm a whopping 44 years old. In my upbringing, my sister is three years older than I am. That means I listen to the music of my older sister, who happened to be a fan of all the hair bands. So as I grew up in elementary school, junior high, it was Motley Crue and Poison and Whitesnake and Duran Duran and Michael Jackson, all on cassette tape. You guys all remember that? Some of you in the older generation may have been the Beatles and whatnot. As I locked into high school, I locked more into uh, loud and heavy music. I still like loud and heavy music, and I find my Christian alternatives for that. Um, any of you guys familiar with Metallica? My dad, had a rude, my dad had a rude introduction to Metallica one day when he got into my car and moved it out of the way of his car. And I had a system in high school, and it happened to be full blast, and I think I cut his life a few minutes short that day. <laughs> but this is, this is, remember, we're talking about expectations this morning. And I'm bringing up Metallica, I'm bringing up music, because this is an illustration that I've been sitting in over the last week as I've been sitting in this morning's text that we're going to cover. And that is, again, expectations. Expectations that we have of God, expectations that we have of other people. So when I, after I came to the Lord, um, I, can re- I was on staff at the Calvary in Salt Lake, and there was a kid there doing community service. As he's vacuuming around the church, he's got his earphones in, and I asked him what he was listening to, and he said, Pantera. That was another one of my favorite bands. Don't, don't look him up. The band is a total middle finger up at God. And again, this is one of the things that I sit in personally in my relationship with the Lord of what he has saved me from, how he has transformed me. And even in the days when I was listening to that kind of stuff, how he protected me, because I was ignorant to those things. I just liked the driving beats. So when I grabbed that CD, I popped it into my computer at work and I'm listening to it with earphones on because I didn't want to freak out on my coworkers at the church, but I'm sitting there looking at the lyrics coming to an understanding and that sent me down this trail of looking, to, looking at the lyrics of other music that I listen to. Well, I pay attention to news and Metallica came out with a new album where they're, you got this heavy metal music tied into symphony. It's something that they did 20 years ago and they just did it again. Music's just released, so I'm reading that and then I'm listening to it, don't judge me. Um, But where my mind goes in all of this, it always goes back to my history. Here's who I was, and here's who the Lord has caused me to be in him. But when I think about that history, when I listen to that, um, I always think about my friends from high school, from college. It always causes me to pray for them, pray for their salvation. I have a couple of my friends who know the Lord. Most of them don't. But it, it's, again, it's a, it's a prayerful interaction for me. It's a, it's a, it's, it puts me in that position of praise and gratitude for the Lord. But as we talk about expectations, I'm going to read you uh, the lyrics from one of their songs, and there's a variety of lyrics that we could sit in in regards to their opinion in regards to God, but this song is titled, The God That Failed, and I want you to listen to this in regards to expectations about who you think God is and how you think God ought to operate in your life. Now listen to these lyrics, pride you took. And this is speaking to believers in Christ, okay? Pride you took, pride you feel, pride that you felt when you kneel. Not the word, 
not the love, not what you thought from above. Find your peace, find your say, find the smooth road on your way. Trust you gave a child to save, but he left you cold in him in grave. It feeds, it grows, it clouds all that you will know. Deceit, deceive, decide just what you will believe. I see faith, and this is his perspective, listen, I see faith in your eyes. Never you hear the discouraging lies. I hear faith in your cries. But broken is the promise, betrayal. The healing hand held back by the deepened nail follow the God that failed. So, here's the meaning behind this song and why I'm bringing it up. Again, this is just a meditation point for me and this idea of expectations. So, this is, I found this on the internet describing. It says, the central theme of the song is faith and human reliance on it and uh, and and of unrewarded belief in a God that fails to heal. So the lyrics of this song and material were inspired by the lead singer's anguish on the circumstances surrounding his mother's death. So context, he was a teenager when his mom died. She died of cancer after refusing medical attention solely relying on her belief in God to heal her. Hetfield said that had she not followed her Christian science beliefs, she could have survived. A professor that studies Metallica, I guess, in regards to religion, a Baylor University professor of religion, says that Hetfield does not celebrate God's failure in the song, but instead blames God through his mother's faith and death, for contributing to the meaninglessness of life. So here's the contrast that Jesus sits in this morning in regards to expectations. Expectations based in falsehood always lead to devastation and destruction. Expectations based in truth always lead to revival and life. Now, I want you to sit in this. How many of you have had expectations of another human being? You expect your spouse to do A, and your spouse does not do that. What does that emotion create in you? There's, there's anger, there's frustrations, there's conflict in the relationship. When a human being fails to meet your expectations of what they ought to do or ought not to do, it brings about destruction, devastation, hurt, pain in our lives. Again, when it comes to human beings, we ought to expect each other to fail. We ought to expect each other to make mistakes. We ought to expect each other not to love when you should love. We ought to expect one another to to fail in this area Because we're failures. We make mistakes. But when it comes to God, this is is a subject matter that I have sat in for multiple years just in my relationship with God about the expectations that I have him to act, 
the expectations that I have for him to perform. I know that as I pray, Lord, it's your will be done, but there have been multiple circumstances in my life where, God, I am asking you to do this, and he hasn't done that. It hasn't been in my time. It hasn't been done in my way, and what has it led to? It leads to an internal battle, an internal devastation, an internal destruction that's going on. I'm grieving my relationship with the Lord. I'm abiding in unbelief rather than belief. And now, as we sang these other songs of worship this morning, I want you to contrast this expectancy. So for Metallica, for this song, for other songs, this man, as he watched his mom pass away from a disease as he watched her faith in God, he pointed the finger at God and said, God, you failed. Faith is worthless. Life is meaningless. And that's what he's abided in. A, an expectation based in falsehood. Now, change this to some of the lyrics that we sang this morning. And this really jumped at me because one of their lyrics said that uh, find the smooth road on your way. Life circumstances may not be smooth but he is the way maker is he not God you're here moving in our midst I worship you you are here working in this place I worship you you're here touching every heart I worship you you're here healing every heart I worship you you're the way maker you're the miracle worker you're the promised keeper. Light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. He's the miracle worker. You ever prayed for healing for somebody and it doesn't, God doesn't heal? Did God fail? Or is it just not his will? And we need to be under his will in every area of life. Hear the word roaring as thunder with a new future to tell. The dry season in our lives, it's over. There's a cloud beginning to swell. To the skies heavy with blessing, lift up your eyes, offer your heart. Jesus Christ opened the heavens. Now we receive the Spirit of God. We receive your reign. Every seed buried in sorrow you will call forth in its time. You are Lord, Lord of the harvest, calling our hope now to arise. Like a flood, we receive your love, Lord. With great anticipation, with great expectation, we await the promise to come. Everything that you have spoken will come to pass. Let it be done. See the contrast in expectations? So as we sit in this morning's text, again, we're dealing with prophecy, right? Jesus is answering the question, what is the sign of your coming? When are you going to come, Jesus? And we, we've gone through the details of here's all the general signs, here's the specific sign of the abomination of desolation, and here is the sign of Jesus coming. It is Jesus himself. He is the sign when he arrives. And then as he ste steps into the application 
of what he wants us to do in our lives. One, he tells us as disciples, we need to be learners. We need to pay attention to the signs of the times, to learn, to seek him for his wisdom, to seek him for that information, to apply it in our lives. Last week, we sat in the idea of nobody knows the day or the hour. That is going to continue through the theme of the couple of parables that we're going to go through this morning. But in the idea that nobody knows the day or the hour, the exhortations last week were that we need to watch. And remember, this idea of being watchful means that we need to be in continuous readiness and alertness is the idea of being watchful in our relationship with the Lord. We need to be ready. Being ready has the idea of being prepared for what you were designed for. You were designed to image God. And in that being ready, we are prepared to image God regardless of what the circumstances look like. So as we talk about prophecy, when you sit in the Old Testament, we are told repetitiously in the Old Testament that when it comes to prophecy, why God tells us what's going to happen in the future is so that when those things happen, you will know that I am the Lord. Literally, you will know that I am, God says, the I am. I am the self-existent one. I am the one who created the heavens and the earth. He is without creator himself. He is in complete control. He has all knowledge. He is exactly who he says he is, and we ought to expect him to be exactly who he has declared himself to be. In the New Testament, we're told in Revelation that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Old Testament, The purpose of prophecy is to know God. New Testament, the purpose of prophecy is for you and I to know Jesus. Its whole purpose is evangelism, preaching the good news about who God is, what he has done, and what he is going to do is the purpose of prophecy. So, with all that as background... We have two parables to cover this morning. I lied to you last week. My brain got stuck in some rut. And I said that uh, uh, the, the parable of the virgins was about his, uh, Jesus arriving sooner than expected. And uh, the last parable in regards to the talents was about him coming later than expected. And again, that's wrong because my brain was stuck in a rut and I skipped over The one that is really about him coming sooner than expected is what we're going to cover first. And as we get into chapter 25, it's it's a discussion about Jesus coming later than expected. So remember, we are dealing with expectations this morning. This is what Jesus is dealing with. He says that he is going to come at an hour that we do not expect, yet at the same time, we are told to be watchful and to be ready so that that day will not come by surprise. So there's this unknownness to it, and at the same time, there's a knownness to it, and we need to reconcile those things together as we follow him. So, Matthew 24, verse 45, first one, says, when, who then, sorry, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming 
And he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking, literally not expecting for him to come, and at an hour when he is not aware of, doesn't know, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 45, back up there. Who's a faithful and wise servant? And again, this, this idea of faithfulness. God is faithful. Our God is worthy of our trust. He is worthy of our belief. And as our master, he, there is a, there's all different descriptions that God uses in the Bible to help us to understand our relationship with him. One of those relationships that he uses is a master and slave relationship. So there's no getting around this. Who is a wise slave? This is dealing with a specific cultural context. As Jesus is speaking the words, this is his context. This is the reality of the world in which Jesus lived. This is, so he's speaking in regards to their context. But this idea of being a steward... There's a household steward. Who's a, who's a wise household slave who has been appointed by the master? You're over all of my goods. You are, your responsibility is to give to the other slaves, the other servants of the household, to give them their portion of food allotted day by day. There's a, there's a whole economic structure going on in this household. And Jesus is speaking a parable that, that they would all be familiar with and understand. Who, who's a wise and faithful steward over a master's house? Well, is it not the one that the master, when he is away and when he comes, finds that individual doing exactly what they've been prepared and designed to do is the picture that we're given. So the wise one is going to be the, the servant who is watchful and the servant who is prepared, the servant who is doing. In commercial break, remember that we're really studying the book of Acts. It's been a while. We put it on pause to sit here in, in end times prophecy as we're going, as we're trying to examine and look at just everything that's going on in our culture currently. Eventually, we're going to get back to the book of Acts after we finish this, after a quick stop in 2 Corinthians 2. But I bring that up to say that in the book of Acts, we are watching God work. We are watching him do. That's what I defined that study as, his workmanship. So again, a servant is to be found doing, doing the work that the Lord is directing us and has prepared us to do. That's defined as the wise household servant. And surely Jesus gives us promise. This can be the expectation that we have as we bend our knee our heart, our mind, and our lives to Jesus as we offer ourselves to him daily as a living sacrifice. It's going to make us a ruler over all of his possessions. Again, we could sit and out for the rest of the morning. What does it mean that we are co-heirs with Christ? What a promise. But the contrast, and this is what the Lord does throughout his word and throughout the process of teaching us is he gives us contrasts. Here's good on one side, here's bad on the other side. So the bad, which is, this is the worthless servant, says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. So here the idea, again, uh, if I think that Jesus is not present right now, 
If I think that Jesus is not or cannot come back in the immediate future, my idea is that Jesus is delaying his coming. And the application of this parable is the, the master comes back sooner than expected. So is what he's, he's dealing with. So if we sit in this position, he's defining a, a foolish, a bad, an unwise, a worthless household servant. And we are all servants in his house, the house being the body of Christ, all that imagery, begins to beat his fellow servants. Jesus isn't watching, he's not here to observe, he's not coming back yet. Going to start, rather than giving my fellow servants their food portion, their food allotment, as deserved, I begin to mistreat them. I begin to act as their savior, as their king, as their master. Begin to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. Just doing whatever I want to do according to my flesh, sitting in the house as master of the house, Drinking up the master's wine, eating the master's food, acting like the master myself. So when the master shows up, on a day, and again, this is sooner than expected, on a day, right? Not being looked for. No expectation that he's going to arrive right now, an hour that the servant is not aware of. And then you have this imagery that Jesus says, when I come, when the master comes, is he not going to cut that servant in two Again, we have to sit in this. Is this literal? Is this an execution? You can sit in Revelation 19 when Jesus comes back. It says he has a sword coming out of his mouth, defined as the word of God, in which he is going to strike down the nations. There is a violent description there in regards to humanity that is in rebellion against God, or is this just an idiom in saying that this servant is going to be beat and his portion, his allotment, is not going to be in regards to the master's good, it's going to be in regards to the hypocrites. Now, if you can remember when the very first Sunday that we began uh, this particular study, we dealt with Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders in Matthew 23. He repetitiously calls those individuals hypocrites. The ones who know God, the ones who love God, the ones who know the word, the ones who teach the word. Yet, they have a total roadblock in their relationship with God. They're filled with self-righteousness. They're filled with their own idols. They're filled with the pursuits of their own flesh. And Jesus deals with their hearts directly and calls them hypocrites. Face public, but you're totally different on the inside. You go out there, you make disciples of yourselves, you make uh, uh, converts to yourselves, and then again, you make them twice as much the son of hell as you are. Those are out of the, the words of our loving, out of the mouth, those words out of our loving Savior. Here, the servant, the unwise, the bad, the wicked, the worthless servant who does not expect Jesus, whose expectations are based in falsehood, ends up with devastation and destruction in their life. There is a sending out of the household, regardless of how violent that action is, and what does it say the result for that servant's heart is? Weeping. And again, this isn't just crying tears of sadness. This is wailing. This is moaning. This is grinding teeth and anger. And this is where we sit in this idea of expectations. 
So, the expectations that you have of me as pastor, the expectations that you have of the church in America, the expectations that you have of your government leadership, the expectations that you have of your spouse, the expectations that you have of your children, if they are based in falsehood, it will lead to hypocrisy. It will lead to wailing and moaning, whether it's internally or externally. It will lead to you grinding your teeth, anger, frustration, bitterness. Why I brought up the the Metallica song is because I look at the life of a teenager who lost his mom. We sit in this in reality today. I, I mentioned, you know, my boy's friend who lost both of his mom and dad just over a month ago to COVID. Teenager, 17 years old, both of his parents are dead. That event in Hetfield's life has led to the last, you know, another 45 years of that failure, his interpreted failure of God has carried forward for the rest of his life. And there are many hurts and wounds that you have in your life of people who have failed you, and God may have failed you, where that left a dramatic imprint, scar, thought process in your life. And again, the freedom that we have in Christ is he is truly the healer of all of those wounds and all of those scars. He is the one who transforms our mind. He is the one that you can look back at history and you can look at all the different ways that he protected you, that he guided you, that he put you in the valley intentionally because that's what, exactly what you needed at that moment. And often when we're in the valley, we rage at God. Where are you? I always, I always think of Jesus in the boat. The storm is raging. Jesus is asleep. What are the disciples doing? Wake up. Don't you care? We're going to die. Any of you been that toddler? I have been. Where are you, God? I need you now. But the heart of faith and the heart of trust, the right expectation based in truth, God is the great I am. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is just. He is holy. He is a refiner. He is a protector. He is a judge. He punishes us when we need punishments. And again, is it, is it um, maybe ch- uh, chastisement would be the better word. He disciplines us when we need discipline. He puts us in timeout when we need timeout. He takes away from us when we need things taken away. He gives to us when we need things given to him. He gets to do as master, as Lord, I and you, we have been bought with a price. We are free from this world. We are free from the devil. We are free from the flesh. We are free from sin. We have freedom and liberty in Jesus Christ. We are not free from God. We are bound to him. We are nothing apart from him. But in, the, in him, in all that he is, he tells us that I will make you just like me. There is coming a day. We have an expectation for the future. There is coming a day that each one of us are going to stare into the eyes of our God. And we are told through the word of God so that our expectation is in truth, 
We will know him just as he knows us. Wow. Can't wait. So, expectations. False expectation that Jesus is delaying his coming. No, he will come exactly when he is supposed to. And our role and responsibility in today is to be faithful, to be found worthy. Again, not in our own strength. This is who he makes us to be in him as we watch for him. Second one, the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise, five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, right? It's coming later than expected. They all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out and meet him. Then all those virgins arose. They woke up. They trimmed their lamps. They put them in order. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go, rather, to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready, and remember, being watchful and being ready, those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, Open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. This is another cultural context. Um, They would all be able to immediately sit in the the nightmare scenario that Jesus is painting for the foolish bridesmaids. So you have this wedding scenario where it's usually a multi-day event in this culture. Throughout this earlier this day, there would have been feasting and dancing and a bunch of goings on already. But before the official ceremony, there's there's this... uh, um, you know, after that kind of day's events, everybody separates again, and then there's a waiting for the groom to go and get the bride. So this, this picture, this illustration of these 10, again, it's, 10 is just a complete number. We don't need to sit in and being like overly analytical of the parable that Jesus is giving here and the instructions. But he's just dividing the group into half. You have every single one of these women is expecting the groom to come, yes or no? So it's just like us. All of us are expecting Jesus to come. So what's the contrast between being wise and being a fool? The wise ones are declared to have been ready. They were abiding in. They were being watchful. They, were, they had their lamps or their torches, depending on what that was. They had their oil to, to, be, to supply themselves for the events of the day. They were ready. The foolish ones are defined as being unready. They're still expecting the groom to come, but there's a lack of preparation in their lives. And when the event, when the crisis happens in their life, and the crisis is, here comes the groom, and everybody, they wake up, they were asleep, and again, there's no condemnation here. It's just 
the wedding party is lingering. So you can imagine the events of the day in the parable, in the teaching. You have these gals, they're all exciting, they're, they're chatting away, and then slowly the conversation fades off as they all nod and they fall asleep. And then at midnight, at an hour not expected, later than expected, because they all fell asleep. Here's the, wake up. And they all put their, and again, if it's, most think it's a torch where you have the, the fabric that's dipped in oil or rope that's dipped in oil around the torch. This is, you know, it's at night. These things are to be lit. It's part of the wedding procession. They go out and they meet the groom as the groom is declared to come. And they lead the groom to the bride. They get the bride and they go back. And this is, this is the process that's going on culturally. The five didn't have enough oil. They lacked in their preparation. What did they look to? They looked to others in the room saying, you need to provide for me. But other people can't provide for you. You are the one who is responsible for your own relationship, your own preparation, your own watchfulness, your own readiness in regards to your Savior's interaction with you. This is, again, the imagery is beautiful to, to sit in in depth, and I would encourage you to go back and really meditate on these things. In Romans chapter 8, you know, this imagery of the oil, I believe is definitely a picture of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Romans 8, 9 says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So in this, in this description between the wise and the foolish, there is an expectation, there's a relationship with the groom, there's an expectation of his, his arrival, there's a lack of personal preparation, so that at the moment when he comes, there is, again, the, the lack of preparation. Uh, he came later than expected, um, they're not, they didn't put forth the efforts. Again, this is, this is a, the nightmare scenario of this culturally is every single woman in this culture, it was an honor to be a bridesmaid. So if they failed in their duties in the community of being a bridesmaid, if they failed in that preparation, if they failed in their duty, this is an honor-shame culture. They, they would abide in that shame in their community for the rest of their lives. Remember that chick that didn't bring enough oil? That, that's what you would be known for. It's a nightmare scenario that's being uh, discussed. And in both of these, this is what Jesus is trying to well up in us. He's not trying to well up in us fear. He's trying to well up in us what to do with true expectation. Pursue being watchful. Pursue being ready. Pursue being found faithful, worthy of God's trust in you with what he has given to you. That ought to be our pursuit. Not in ourselves, of course, in our relationship with him. With these virgins, it's the exact same thing. Having an attitude of being prepared, of paying attention to what's going on in life, pursuing... Um, even purchasing, again, this isn't buying salvation, but this is just going about and doing the acts that we are instructed to do, whether it's sitting in God's word, studying, prayer, worship, service. There's all different kinds of things in regards to the area of preparation that the Bible would very clearly define for us. So while 
they go and buy, the bridegroom comes, so they missed it because they're gone, because they weren't prepared. Those who were ready, they went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Write down these verses, Isaiah 22, 22, and Revelation 3, verses 7 and 8, talk about the keys of David. Gives this idea, again, that there is a door being opened that nobody else can open other than the Lord. There's a door that's shut that nobody else can shut. Again, based upon these keys. And Peter's profession of faith to Jesus, what did Jesus give to him? Gave him the keys of heaven. All of this is similar in its imagery and its description. And the reality is when Jesus comes, he is telling every human being right now, behold, I stand at the door and knock. We already covered that verse in Revelation 20. Or Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And again, he covered in this parable, he, this coming event, it is near, it is at the doors. Jesus is standing at the door knocking right now. Saying, anybody who opens the door of their heart, I will come in and I will dine with you. The imagery of a messianic feast is in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. We find, it, we find food and the blessings of food all over Jesus' teachings. And that's what's going on here. There is the marriage supper of the Lamb that's described in Revelation 19. Again, Revelation 19, it's all, the, it's all of the description about Jesus returning. It has in there that promise that all of prophecy, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. It has the description of blessed are those who enter into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the reality is, is when he comes, those who are prepared, and what does prepared mean? I believe in Jesus. I trust in Jesus. My expectations are in Jesus and Jesus alone and none other. It's not in my work. It's not in a church. It's not in a man. It's all in him. Those who are ready, they come in, and when we enter into his presence, the door is shut for everybody else, and it is locked. So that, again, this nightmare scenario, the virgins, the, the five foolish come back, and they're, Lord, and they're, they are now knocking on the door. Let us in. What does this parable say? I don't know you. This is where we have to sit and caution. You know, you don't want to question your salvation with, you know, with worry, um, with uh, performance-based questions. But we are told to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling. We are told to make sure that we are his. These, both of these instructions, both of these parables paint the picture of individuals who are underneath the authority of a master, who are expecting the groom to come. And in their expectations, the ones who are left out, their expectations are based upon falsehoods, their own imaginations, their own structures, their own, their own flesh, their own way to perform, their own doings is what the unwise are based upon. They are not watchful. They are not ready. It's according to their flesh, and they are excluded from the kingdom, and it says that there's devastation, destruction, weeping, and gnashing. Those, again, the, that's, that ought to cause a great amount of fear and a great amount of pause in all of our lives. I have always found the end of the Sermon on the Mount one of the most shocking scriptures there is and shocking warnings from Jesus. There are going to be many on that day 
who come to Jesus, calling him Lord. And he will say to those individuals, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Calling him Lord, but truly workers of their own ways. The contrast, the exhortation, the encouragement from Jesus in all of his word is expect God to be exactly who he's declared himself to be. So as we sit in his words, there ought to be in us a great amount of expectation that in our daily lives that he is present, that he is leading, that he is speaking, that he is directing, that he is refining. If you are expectant, if you are expecting, um, if your expectations are based in his truth, again, this entire exhortation, you are going to, um, that is going to lead you in your daily life to personal revival, personal refinement and sanctification. That expectation based in his truth, it is going to cause you to be watchful, paying attention to the circumstances of your life and whatever they may be. Lord, what are you doing here? What are you doing in my relationship with this person? They just failed. I just failed. Lord, what does the reconciliation process look like? What does the prayer process look like? What do the actions look like in my life? Lord, how do I stand strong in you? How do I trust that you are the one who is the overcomer in all of the battles that I face every single day? I expect you, Jesus, to forgive me of all of my sins because of your sacrifice on the cross. My expectation is based upon the truth that you rose again from the dead. I expect you to come back from where you are right now, seated on the throne with your Father. I expect you, Lord, to come at a time that I don't expect. So much of me, Lord, thinks that you're delaying your coming. When I look at circumstances, Lord, I can, I can feel that weight of there's so much more yet to be done before you come. My fear is, Lord, that you'll come when I'm not prepared. But I hear you, Lord. I hear you directing me to you. I hear your instruction to be watchful, to be alert, to be watchful. I hear you, Lord, to that exhortation that you want me to be ready, that you want me to be prepared. I understand your teachings, Lord, of what a wise servant looks like and what a wicked and bad servant looks like, Lord. And you know my heart. Lord, I don't want to be found in the position of abusing myself, abusing your children, abusing those in this world for my own desires, Lord. I don't want to be found unprepared to meet you. Lord, I I sit in the warning of calling you Lord and being a hypocrite. That is my greatest nightmare 
that I would just be trusting in myself, that I would just be putting on a show. And I'm thankful, Lord, for the hope and the confidence that you have given to me, that you have given to us. I know that my faith is not in myself. I know that my faith is in you. You were worthy, Lord. We hope in you. We expect you, Lord, to, to receive our praise and our thanks. We expect, Lord, that as your kids, that you receive our words of blessing to you. We expect you, Lord, as often as we gather together, that you're in this place, that you assemble with us, that you are here, that you are speaking, that you are the way maker, you are the miracle worker. Lord, you are the one that is in control of our lives and our paths and our circumstances and our situations. So thankful, Lord, how you've healed me from all of my false expectations. And Lord, where I still need to be refined and transformed, have your way in me, Lord. See, examine me, Lord. See if there's any wicked way within me. And transform me through the blood of Christ. Transform my mind, Lord. I trust that you have already given to me a new heart, a heart of flesh, on which is written your word. I hear your call every single day to know you, to know that you are the I am, that you are my creator. And Lord, each of us, we have a great expectation of being made like you, of seeing you, of abiding with you. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until that day comes, may you find us doing what you are directing us to do every day, that we would be faithful to you. Cause us to be worthy, Lord. We love you. Bless us. Receive our worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.